What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain there are certain times and certain products in on its history that I get particularly excited about. Like I remember when I first made what was called Hemp Force, which is now Power Food Active, and I was actually ordering the raw ingredients and getting my mixing spoon and trying to figure it out and trying to decipher how to make it. And I finally made a good formula and I started making shakes and I was so stoked. I was like literally running around to the neighbors, having them try these homemade smoothies. And, you know, there's been moments like that with the supplements and with fitness equipment and with different things throughout history. And Right now, we have another one of those moments, and it's with the new Onnit protein bars that are coming out. So we first made our first foray, and we had these vanilla almond bars, which were great, but we really had the opportunity to take them to the next level once we got used to that formula, once we understood what the flavor profiles could be, how to take those to the next level. So I'm so thrilled and so happy to announce that we now have two new flavors, which are absolutely my favorite flavors the blueberry walnut and the mint chocolate chip and just like our other protein bars it has a combination of 60 different plant ingredients along with grass-fed whey and it's really low sugar all the bars have under five grams of sugar they taste phenomenal you're getting all the micronutrients from all those different plant ingredients you're getting healthy fats it's one of the best bars that I've ever seen on the market unequivocally. I mean, you look at some of the other famous bars that are out there, a lot of them have a lot of sugar, a lot of them have a lot of artificial ingredients. Nobody's using grass-fed whey and 60 different plant. It's completely unique, and I really do truly believe that the flavors are unparalleled here. And we got some new protein bites that are coming out as well, but for right now, we're focusing on the protein bars, and they're absolutely phenomenal. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey, lock in your 10%, and try these things out. I promise you, you're not going to be disappointed. I mean, the blueberry ones are like are crazy. They like blow your mind. I'm a huge mint chocolate chip fan too, so I'm all over these things, and I think you guys will be too. So once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey, and uh, check out the new protein bars. My friend Tim Ferriss is a man that needs no introduction. He's got one of the best podcasts in the world. He's written some incredible books, multiple-time bestseller, and really an interesting person. And what you'll find in this podcast is he's one of the people who is the most committed to service that I've actually ever met. So we talk about Burning Man. We talk about psychedelic harm reduction. We talk about our personal stories and struggles and challenges. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So without further ado, my friend, Tim Ferriss.
Tim Ferriss, my man, welcome. Thank you, sir. Good to see you, brother. Likewise. Last time I saw you was at the Burning Man airport, and somehow I managed to not see you while I was at Burning Man, but now I know why. It's true. Because you were working your ass off. I had, I had a few commitments. A few commitments. A few commitments is a little bit of an understatement because <laughs> you were working for Zendo, That's which right. is the psychedelic harm reduction arm of maps.org. Mm-hmm. And you were working, obviously, the most important shift. Graveyard you know, shift. The graveyard shift. Midnight to 8 a.m. The overnight shift. So as if Burning Man wasn't <laughs> fucked up enough <laughs> and challenging enough, yeah. you know, you really put yourself in the thick of it, like right in the heat of the flame. I did. I did. I wanted to give back from the other side, uh, having been supervised in the past myself to people who in some cases may not be prepared at all for the experience that they sign up for at Burning Man. Meaning there are people for, for those who may not be aware who show up to Zendo who are not on any drugs, who are having psychotic breaks of one type or another because Burning Man itself is already so overstimulating and disorienting. Yeah. Can be, at least. And And sometimes so much so that you take psychedelics and like it is not even as strong as Burning Man itself. So so like your whole dosing has to be reevaluated as well because the whole thing is so overwhelming with light and fire and sound and friendship and some kind of unusual ingestion of food and water which is not according to your normal schedule like everything is thrown up in the air the environment's totally different right so you have people who may not be prepared for sandstorms they may not have proper goggles they may not have a camelback so they could be dehydrated already and then you add on top of that the feeling that many people have which is the burning man experience would not be complete without some type of drug ingestion so they use lsd for the first time for instance Mm -hmm. in the deep playa and their friends have 100 at-bats, so they decide to do 200, 300 micrograms. Uh-huh. And that is not necessarily what I would call a controlled environment. <laughs> no. And uh, so a fair, a fair number of them end up then at Zendo, typically brought in by their friends because they are experiencing any number, any range of emotions uh, or states going from acute paranoia, very common, to... Acute. acute paranoia the classic i think mm-hmm. my friends are trying to kill me yeah <laughs> i think or people are recording my up. voice yeah, 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 all yeah, yeah. of you are out to get me yeah i've had a few people call me feeling that and then I, I listened very patiently and i said aha i see you're experiencing what's called the classic <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> this yeah. is the called the classic yeah. and you're gonna be okay yeah one of the jokes that uh one of the organizers and, and the staff are all volunteers there are a lot of volunteers mm-hmm. so yeah and it's very well orchestrated and there is a a flow for administration, or I should say rather intake and medical evals and so on, because not everyone is appropriate for Zendo, which is really intended for people who are having a tough time psychologically or emotionally, not physiologically. So if someone mm. has taken five times the amount of MDMA that would be considered a normal dose and they're experiencing heart palpitations or any type of physical distress, then they would get escalated to the medicinal side of the exactly they would be sent care, they would yeah. be sent to medical uh yeah uh, the 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 joke that i heard was a number of the folks who'd been involved with the zendo for a long time wanted to put a huge sign up inside the yurts that said you took a drug and it is working 
<laughs> because the 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 overwhelming feeling uh, by I would say many people who end up in Zendo who are having a tough time is that something is going wrong. They're having an abnormal mm. experience. So the training which all volunteers need to undergo beforehand is fairly simple and straightforward. You're not supposed to guide you're not supposed to play shaman you're not supposed to shake a rattle and sing at people <laughs> you are really just there to listen and empathize and on and some level just constantly yeah. assure them with your not freaking out yeah. that hey you're fine this normalize is normal. it yeah right? exactly. so when people were having these anxiety bouts just saying oh yeah that's very common like you're actually doing much better than half of the people i've seen come through tonight mm -hmm. so you're doing great yeah, and that's and it's so fucking cool that, you know, this is not something that had to be there. You know, this yeah. is just intelligent, conscious, awakened adults, like the people working for MAPS and like a lot of other people like yourself who are deciding, all right, if you're going to create an environment where people are going to recreationally take psychedelics and sometimes, you know, spiritually and intentionally take psychedelics at Burning Man, the whole gamut, the whole spectrum is available there. But if you're going to have that, have some kind of system that actually cares for people psychologically yeah. and it's just one of those things where in some way a free market of non-paid you know volunteers has just developed to create this environment which is fucking beautiful yeah it's a, it's a, it's a very from what i observed at least this time around doing as many shifts as humanly possible from midnight to 8 a.m uh it's very well run and it's a shame that you don't see that type of harm reduction at more festivals and in more environments because the, the legislature and regulations and laws are set up, Rave Act being one of them, in such a way that for an organizer to have harm reduction is viewed as an admission of guilt, an admission mm. of condoning drug use at their Yeah, event. it's like trying to teach actual sexual education. You're right. then condoning you know underage premarital sex right which is right. so stupid because yeah. you know you have to realize the practical truth of the matter which is yeah. people are having sex and people are taking drugs yeah. sorry everybody that's the world yeah, so exactly. are we going to deal with it or are we just going to close a blind eye plug our ears like that you know hear no evil see no evil monkey and go la 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 not happening yeah you know no. and unfortunately well, we've been in that yeah. paradigm for way too fucking long yeah it's 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 ridiculous so if we're going to look past the complete inefficacy of of, of prohibition and preaching abstinence to contend with the reality uh and just the how human nature leads us to that reality then zendo is a great place to uh both observe how that functions in practice and also to gain some experience myself yeah totally. to see how i react to those type of type of circumstances mm -hmm. and it's very difficult if not impossible to predict it in advance i remember doing a training in san francisco at one point with nert which is the northern california emergency response team or training and it's done by the fire department the police department to train civilians to help in disaster scenarios earthquakes and so on because law enforcement cannot handle uh, any real uh black swan event uh which wouldn't even be a black we're not swan talking event, about say. yoga people yeah no we're not we're talking <laughs> about say a seven plus richter scale earthquake yep. and you don't have to look very far back to say loma prieta uh the the world series earthquake in northern california to see how badly things can turn out mm -hmm. and 
uh, we did a number of exercises. Everyone was volunteering, but paying for this training where they would have us uh, basically self-assemble into groups of, say, three to five. We would choose someone to be a team lead. We'd step outside of the classroom, and then they would flip, flip over tables and have people strewn all over the floor pretending to be in various states of distress. Like someone's had a leg blown off, someone's dying, yeah, someone's yeah. just hurt, someone's just worried, some people are screaming. None of it's real, right? This is all play acting. And when you walked in, it was really fascinating to see how many people you never would have predict, never would have predicted would do well, did really well and were calm. And then other people who were like the the toughest dudes in the class mm -hmm. would just freeze. Yeah. And until you're in those circumstances, you really don't know how you are going to respond. So I I also wanted to just subject myself to that. And it's, you know, my stepdad was on the SWAT team and he talks about this as well. And and any tied up chopper type of high operator like Tim Kennedy or something. I mean, a lot of the training is designed to push you back, the push you past those moments of freezing. And you may think like I handled situations pretty well, but I've been in situations where I've totally frozen. Like I was in Australia and I may have told the story a long time ago on a podcast too, but I was in Australia and there is this buddy I was hanging out with who had a trick where he could light Bundaberg rum from the nozzle of the bottle and then when it hit his mouth, it would go out and he would chug it. So he'd create this like flaming spout. Well, homeboy decided to try and do it with overproof rum, which was like the difference between 60 or whatever, 70 proof to like 110 proof. Well, he'd lit the 110 proof rum. It didn't go out. And so the spout instead started flaming through his mouth and then he started missing his mouth and then his face caught on fire and we're in the kitchen of the house that I was renting. And I just start looking at him with his face on fire going, oh no, yeah. oh no, what do I do now? So I went to the faucet and started splashing water from the spout of the faucet like an idiot. Like that's not the move. We had towels, like, like kitchen towels. I should have thrown one of those on him, you know, and smothered it. But I've never prepared for that, yeah. you know, and other people, three other people, other guys were just looking at him completely frozen yeah. and like unable to move. And that's, those are the type of situations that unless you put yourself in that kind of hypothetical scenario, like what would I do in this case? You may not act at all, or you may act incorrectly or totally. so it's important. I think for all like responsible adults to kind of either go through formalized training or at least go through the mental practices of like, all right, what would I do in yeah. this case? How would I handle this? How many people have used, ever used a fire extinguisher or the fire extinguisher they have in their kitchen, right? So to think that if something really goes sideways and there's some type of gas or uh, oil fire in your house where things are catching, that the first time you use this fire extinguisher, you're going to use you're it perfectly properly. It. You're going to nail it. My fire extinguisher experience <laughs> is watching jackass videos. Yeah, right. That is my entire fire yeah. extinguisher so like, experience. So it's like, all right, may, might be a good idea to like take that thing out in a parking lot and play with <laughs> yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, for <laughs> Co sure. Cost thirty bucks. Get another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. All right. So tell me about some of the. You know, obviously, tell me about some of the interesting cases that you saw there had to be a few that stood out that either taught yeah. you something about yourself or taught you something about the experience or human nature well I, I realized very quickly for myself that the name of the game in almost every case i ran into i did not have anybody who was completely losing their mind and violent there were a few cases i only saw two cases like that when i yeah. was volunteering 
uh, those were assigned to other people and then got escalated very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did not have an opportunity to work on any of the complete redline cases. Yeah. But did have a, a number of people who were having a very, very tough time. Uh, I did have an had an experience in my first shift, which I was very grateful for, which was working with a couple. And uh, then after that experience, each time I volunteered, when they were doing roll call and asking the volunteers to sign in, they would ask if we had any special experience or skills. And in the first shift, I was like, oh, I don't even know how to respond to that. But then by the second shift, I was like, well, I can sit for couples, right? I've, yeah. done, I've done that once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up then sitting for another couple. And what, uh, what, I th- what was true in both cases that I found amusing and in retrospect, not surprising was that couple would come in and the guy would be like, yeah, my girlfriend's having a really tough time. It's having a really tough time. And then they would sit down and the girlfriend would be maybe a little teared up, would like promptly fall asleep. And then the guy would proceed to completely freak out. (laughs) I'm here because my girl needs some help. Let's just get that clear, right? I wouldn't check into Zendo on my own. Yeah. And uh, uh, that spoke to me on a few levels because I think that it's also possible to hold your own state in check long enough to take care of someone else and as soon as that's removed yeah then the the shroud drops and you have to face whatever it is you're contending with personally yeah and i've certainly had that experience myself where you go through a really stressful period or experience but you have someone else or something else to look out for and as soon as that's removed you're exhausted or all of the fatigue and it's so on. It's like you adopt the identity of the caretaker of X person, X position, ignoring and kind of like a classic triage, you know, where you handle the yeah. most vital crisis first and then ignoring your own stuff until it's time for you to actually take that deep breath. Totally. And look at yourself and be like, oh, actually, I have a bullet hole too. Yeah. Uh, should mention that. Yeah. yeah and and uh, overall, I would say that. Um, I've found the normalizing of the experience by whatever means are at your disposal to mm, diffuse or de-escalate things the fastest. So rather than, which we're not supposed to do at Zendo anyway, and I didn't make any real attempts to do this, but rather than trying to, (laughs) along the lines of, say, a guided MDMA session to walk people through their stuff and ask Mm. them questions and probe and- Tell me about your mother. (laughs) Yeah, right. Instead of doing that, asking them about how they felt, getting them doing very basic things, getting them water, uh, getting them blankets, but also whenever they seem panicked by their own response to normalize it. So given, for instance, that I have a decent amount of mileage with various psychedelics to say, oh, that's I've been in your shoes, they would almost always ask me within the first 10 minutes, like, why are you here? Why are you sitting here? Mm -hmm. You're a burning man. You've paid a lot for a ticket. Why are you sitting here? And I would say, well, because I've been in your shoes. I've been sitting there when someone else has watched me and I want to return the favor. And that immediately seemed to put them at ease. Mm. Uh, And uh, it was really to me, and I I can see how this also applies to uh, non-enhanced therapy sessions or talking to people who are having any type of destabilizing experience, making it normal goes a long way. So for instance, when uh, 
people come in who are really paranoid, uh, one thing, and I, this was advice I was given, and I, and I thought to myself, wow, this is really good advice that transcends Zendo. And it was not to deny the paranoia, meaning if they come in and they say, my friends at camp are recording my voice and they're going to use it to blackmail me. And you guys are all recording me and I know it and da 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 da. Rather than saying, that's not true, let me lay out the facts, uh, which nine times out of 10 is simply going to lead to them saying, Doubling down I knew on it. I knew it. Yeah. Of course you would say that. I, know, I knew you wouldn't trust me. I knew you wouldn't believe me. Uh, instead of saying that, but also instead of confirming that's the truth, which of course it is not, and saying, wow, that sounds, but instead saying something like, that sounds really hard. Like, tell me about that. That sounds like it must be a really difficult mm. experience for you. Like, I, if I put myself in your shoes, that would be really stressful. Like, mm. tell me about that. So you're not denying it, you're not confirming it, but you're empathizing with it. Uh, I thought was very, it was a very smart, oblique strategy that I don't think would have occurred to me without someone yeah. mentioning it. I think also recognizing that all these feelings are, are universal. Yeah. Like humans share the full gamut of ecstatic positive experiences and negative experiences. We just kind of fill in the details a little different, have it served to us in a slightly different way. Like, yeah, everybody's been injured and hurt and felt weak and, you know, not themselves. Well, mine recently was driving off the road in the middle of the day and taking a guardrail to the face and having no feeling in the center of my face. Well, that might be slightly unique to me, but nonetheless, who hasn't been in a position where something has happened and they felt you know hurt and knocked down and not themselves and so like finding the ways to at least internally or sometimes vocally drawing the analogies like ah you know i've felt what you know i've felt my own version of what you feel and man that is hard yeah you know so valuable for them to know like okay we're all in this kind of shared experience totally and it made me think about how that could apply outside of zendo also like how many how many conversations or arguments or debates have I had in my life where that would have been the right response? Instead of saying that's true or that's not true, let me lay out the facts, just saying, wow, that sounds really hard. Yeah. That sounds really hard. Like, I'm sorry to hear your experience on that. Like, tell me more. How many times could I have diffused or facilitated something by taking that third option. i don't know hundreds probably yeah, thousands. thousands i mean uh, yeah i mean every argument every, every ever, other every other every or every had. i mean understanding that was a huge shift for me in relationship understanding that the emotional truth of another person it's not your job to to like logically dismantle and disregard somebody else's emotional truth you have to acknowledge their emotional truth like i see what you're feeling and i empathize with exactly how you're feeling and then maybe you can start addressing some of the facts. But the very first thing is acknowledge that an emotional truth is real at that level. And the mechanical, robotic dismantling of the reasons behind that truth is just going to create more anger and distance yeah. and, than actually solving the problem. I mean, this will shorten any confrontation or argument you have by like 10,000%. Yeah. You know, if you just listen and radically empathize with that emotional truth. And that sounds exactly like the training at Zendo, but it applies absolutely to every relationship. Totally. Yeah. What's interesting too is, you know, you obviously did this training at Zendo, which is designed to bring you people, but I've been in dozens of plant medicine ceremonies and there's always been, there's been a few cases out of the 
50 or so traditional ceremonies I've been to in Peru, whether it's Wachuma or Vilca or Ayahuasca or something like that, there's been a few cases where people have kind of lost it. You know, like that is a part of the protocol. You know, Kyle tells a story about a guy who managed to get his hands on a shovel during an ayahuasca ceremony and was swinging his shovel at all the attendants. And they call Kyle because Kyle's a big old guy who can handle himself. And like, Kyle, go fucking handle this guy with the shovel. And Kyle's all blasted on ayahuasca and like, well, fuck, should I choke him out? Like, duck the first shovel hit and like get him in a choke, like a guillotine? Like, what am I going to do here? You know, because he's trying to think that. And then this shovel wielding guy and Kyle just came up with love and basically did the same thing in a loving way empathize with where he was at and the guy just laid down the shovel and they put arm and arm back to the thing he was like i feel you plan b if you don't put down the shovel yeah, yeah. i kick you in the head <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> he did have a plan b he fucking worked out his plan b and interestingly it wasn't a shovel for me but i was in a wachuma ceremony where somebody there not in our group but somebody there grabbed a saber from the table and was actually not using it towards other people, but was actually like trying to cut himself. It was like a ceremonial decorative saber. So he had there no chance of actually breaking the skin. But and then he switched from that to like a stingray tail and was saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And the shaman, Don Howard, you know, had to kind of control the room and kind of keep the energy all right. And there really wasn't, he doesn't have a big attendant staff that can handle a big guy who's kind of, so I kind of stepped up and and really, the key there for me being able to handle that, even though I'm blasted on Wachuma too, and it's not exactly my ideal scenario for the night, was just to explain how, you know, I've also felt feelings of unworthiness and I've also been in that same position and that we are all worthy and that we are all full of love and give him a big hug and give him some love and actually traded my necklace with his and says, here, take take mine. This is filled with all the love that I carry and all the word and, and you're worthy of it. Like I'll give this to you. And then watches that thing kind of de-escalated with love and empathy and care rather than, you know, trying to wrangle the sword from him, pry it from his fingers, tie him down, which I think is a lot of times that first kind of cop response. Man with sword, you know, calling all like calling all other cops, man with sword, and you just beat the shit out of him and take yeah. the sword out. But I think so many situations could probably be handled by that and yeah maybe there is a plan b you know maybe there is something well if this does turn really south like more like a pcp encounter like my stepdad used to tell me where you know people would really get aggressive and there was really no option to get through that mental framework other than physical force okay maybe that is you know that five percent chance that that might be but first let's try empathy and let's try love yeah. and let's try to de-escalate this without something more harmful I was I was really impressed by a number of the more experienced staff at Zendo where uh, there's one particular case this youngish guy probably 31 32 if I had to guess uh, came in and he was just in hysterics like flailing around clearly furious enraged asking people to call 911 because he was being held against his will I mean very possibly going to turn to violence and was like really whipping around and uh, was putting a lot of people on edge. And a number of the volunteers did their best to manage this scenario, uh, but ultimately ended up having that case escalated to a very diminutive woman young woman with a lot of experience had been volunteering for a number of different years and might have been a team lead at that point or one of the coordinators 
And uh, this guy had been ranting and raving, and you could hear him just yelling and screaming from several structures away. And within, I'd say, five or 10 minutes, she had him just calmly laying on the ground, talking to her while she sat there cross-legged. And I I walked to the bathroom and kind of observed it, uh, looking sideways, both to the bathroom and back. And it was completely under control at that point. I was, I was, I don't know exactly what she did, but I was, it was, I was very impressed by how repeatable the de-escalation yeah. approach seemed to be. I, and what, another thing they said uh, very early on in the training was that sometimes it's not about your training and technique. If somebody shows up and they are having an extremely difficult time on any number of substances and you remind them of their ex-boyfriend yeah. or ex-girlfriend or dad who used to beat the shit out of them, doesn't matter what you do. They need somebody else. Right. So there are cases where it's just like, okay, I am not the right person slash persona for this interaction. And it doesn't have to yeah. do with me or what I do. Surrendering the ego completely. Surrendering yeah. this idea that you need to be the savior. And if you're not the savior, you're not worthy. And right. You got to let all of that go, whether you're a shaman or whether you're a caretaker, whether you're a provider or whether you're just sitting in on you know kind of a, a situation where your friends invite you hey can you come in for this conversation we'd love to get your perspective yeah you got a cop be, or a parent or, or anything or yeah you name it i mean they call it the hollow bone right i mean that's the that's the symbol of of the shaman is someone who clears all of their shit out yeah. so that they're empty so that they don't they're not personally attached to outcome they're not personally attached to anything they're just there to be of service and mm-hmm. if you can adopt that mindset you know you're going to be by far the most effective and shit we can do that with ourselves you know that's the thing too all yeah. this practice like we all have these mini freakouts, these mini moments where you know we think everything whether we're on psychedelics or not with these mini moments where we think we need help or things aren't making sense where we're fueling ourselves with anger or jealousy and to be able to be the observer and be like okay okay aubrey i see you right now and i see you because you feel small and wounded and little sick right now i see that your jealousy is coming up to the surface and really what that means is you just need to let that pass and understand that you are still worthy and this is temporary and all things are good and and be the observer of yourself and be your own sitter to a certain degree and have that kind of empathic calm de-escalating nature because it's very easy to start spinning up facts and creating a story and building this case of you know proof of love and someone doesn't love you or some situation is there you can be you know your own johnny cochran come and slay <laughs> yourself or you can be a little a little more chill a yeah. little more passive and i would also suggest to people listening that one thing i found very helpful for improving my self-talk has been working on speaking with others so rather than working on the self-talk directly, uh, say listening to audiobooks or lectures or reading books on nonviolent communication and then practicing that with others, I've seen impact the way I talk to myself, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I would very much encourage people to look into. Um, Neil Strauss originally, I suppose I'd, been, I'd probably had nonviolent communication recommended to me a, a thousand times, but eventually... <laughs> when uh, neil strauss is a uh, probably eight time new york times best-selling author at this point who's become a friend said that the the book he would recommend 
most often to others is this lecture on nonviolent communication. So I took took notice of that because his job is good communication. I mean, yeah. he's done countless interviews for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and so on. So when he pays attention to some particular approach to communication, I pay attention. Yeah. Do you uh, remember the title of that? It is, I believe, just nonviolent communication. The the thumbnail, I want to say it's like a, a hand making a peace sign or a thumbs up or something, <laughs> which is a, it's considered a lecture. I want to say it's five hours and, and some number of minutes. Uh, reasonably easy to find on Audible or, or elsewhere. And I do recommend the audio because you, the delivery is also exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, excluding Zendo, mm -hmm. what is your take on Burning Man? I mean, what's your take on this fucking crazy experience that we collectively make in the desert every year? I think it's, I think it is, uh, speaking as someone who's only been three times, I mean, this is my third time. Uh, this most recent trip was my first time in nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. So a lot has changed as well. The magnitude, the technology is all really dramatically changed. But uh, it's, I mean, it's a miraculous display of, human ingenuity and it's almost i almost feel like it's yeah. in some ways some of the best that we can do yeah it's you know? it's spectacular i mean it's it really is in the most literal sense spectacular it is a spectacle that is hard to express to someone who has not experienced it mm -hmm. uh, riding out for the first night into what what is considered the deep playa for those people who don't know burning man is, is roughly organized if you're looking at it from thirty thousand feet like a horseshoe with the open end at the top and uh, there are coordinates uh the, following the clock face all the way around this horseshoe so from i guess it's two to ten o'clock and then from a out to whatever it is l or something from the the inside of the horseshoe to the outside then there's this big pocket in the middle of the horseshoe which is is considered deep playa, which is this kind of this no man's land, which is a salt flat where there are art cars and structures and weird bars and temples and all sorts of things. Beautiful art. Yeah. And, and when you first, the first night I rode out with a very close friend of mine, uh, the first night I was there, and I, I arrived early for the mandatory Zendo training, I, I thought to myself, you know, this is something that everyone should experience once if they can. Yep. Just, just to see how spectacular it is, and uh, I, I've a lot of other thoughts on Burning Man, but I think first and foremost it is that it is just a overwhelming sense of amazement that something like this could be created. Uh, all the more so because it did not start that long ago. Yeah, I mean, this was it was not long ago that it was what right a nine foot in man Northern in Northern California. It was not that long ago. Mm -hmm. This is not something with hundreds of years of momentum behind it, yeah. uh, which which makes it all the more impressive in some respects. Uh, I think that Burning Man is also, and one could make this argument for the Running of the Bulls or many other uh, festivals or spectacles of this type. I think much like psychedelics or we, we could be more specific and just say, for instance, LSD, that it is a nonspecific amplifier of whatever happens to be going on. Mm -hmm. So if you go into Burning Man expecting uh, 
for instance, that like your relationship is just automatically going to be <laughs> so much closer by the end of Burning Man. Oh, shit. I should tell you that if it is just going to add a tremendous amount of pressure, the PSI are going to triple and quadruple. And you know it, what that fucking does? Yeah. That exposes the cracks. It exposes all of the cracks. So you have to be prepared to deal with your shit. Yeah. Collectively, individually. Yeah. You know, you go with a big crew and there's dynamics in that crew and different things that are there, yeah. hidden, latent under the surface, unexpressed truth that hasn't been brought to a hundred. Yeah. This is gonna bring that shit out. Yeah. So think about a substance slash hippie woo-woo fueled Lord of the Flies. <laughs> yeah. And uh there there is certainly that aspect of Burning Man, which which in some ways does not detract from it. It is part, It is one of the characteristics. No doubt. The difference between Lord of the Flies is Lord of the Flies had a certain scarcity to it where abundance teach. I mean, Burning Man teaches you through a certain level of abundance, so yeah. to speak, in that there's so much light, so much music, so much love, so much possibility for enjoyment. You actually have to meter out your own and make these yeah. decisions like, do I go to sleep tonight? Do I do more drugs? Do, what do I do? Yeah. And so you have this radical freedom to, to take in all you can eat you know it's not yeah. like when you go to the bars in austin you got two o'clock that's all you basically <laughs> got to hit and then the lights go out and then there's very limited options from there all right you can maybe find an after party or something and drag it into something but burning man you got an option to it's, say it's, yes it's and always keep going on. always if you want yeah. to and it's i also found myself asking uh quite often as i was riding around what makes burning man different why can we have 50 to 70,000 people who are pretending to be the best versions of themselves for a week and it kind of works where where you the people are picking up other yeah. people's trash yeah people are helping each other out you're getting random fucking hugs. somebody loses a bike they go find you a bike they own yeah. and give it to you what makes it so different from each person's ability to pretend to be or to be that best self 72 hours later when they, they're clocking back into work, waiting in Starbucks, and the person in front of them is taking way too long to figure out the chip reader, et cetera, et cetera, and they start to get pissy and really irritated. Uh, so I, I, that's, I, I don't have a, a ready question for that, but I, some, of the, some of the aspects of that that I ran through my head as a thought experiment I was like is it the duration if burning man were three weeks long instead of a week long could people actually sustain it, it could they keep it up mm -hmm. or would the the acting slash reducing valve on poor behavior run out at some point mm -hmm. would the decision fatigue set in and then people would start to break maybe 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 not uh but as a social experiment I think it's endlessly fascinating. I think there's a couple other things worth exploring. One is selection bias. Because mm -hmm. people who are going, Burning Man's a hard place to get to. You yeah. got to work for it. There's a yeah. lot of people we know who probably would love Burning Man, but haven't gone just because it's daunting and yeah. scary. And if you're expensive afraid, too. And, and expensive. And if you're afraid of the dust and afraid of, you know, certainly, and you're not fully ready for this, you'll find an excuse not to go to Burning Man. So yeah. there's some definitely selection bias. And then, I think when you do there because of the hardship just like in any tribe or any fraternity there's kind of this this bonding that comes from the difficulty of it like oh, you're totally. all in a shared experience you all had to cover your face for that dust storm you all had to go through 
some of the challenges that Burning Man provided. So it's a little bit easier to have everybody feel like, oh, brother, sister, like this is my tribe. Yeah. You know, and so I think that helps. Whereas in the wide old world, you know, we've learned that, well, people don't really treat us like tribe and we probably don't treat everybody else like tribe. And there's none of these bonding rituals or any kind of selection criteria that gives you that sense of community that I think Burning Man provides. And I think that's another huge piece. Totally. And I think a lot of it is is just dumb luck that they came up with a handful of rules that happen to scale yeah. to 70,000 people. Yeah. And choice of location, like you mentioned, if it were in Bali or someplace that permitted people to leave their trash, everything would change. It's EDC. Yeah. It's EDC. And it's a fucking different animal then if yeah. it's right outside Vegas. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, all right, that's easy enough. I can get my room at the Cosmo and fucking bust into this thing and we're going to leave it like a, like a rock star. You yeah. know, just blow it out and come back to our room that's all clean and fucking say goodbye. Yeah. Different thing. Different. And, you know, <laughs> inevitably you have to deal with all kinds of shit. Like we ran out of all non-alcoholic beverages in our RV day one. <laughs> day one. How did that happen? I was, I was some, I don't know, some failure of logistics, <laughs> some lack of delivery. But literally I was just watching all of the maple water, all of the water, all the sparkling water that we ordered. We got a fraction of the order we ordered. All that disappeared. So my drinking receptacle <laughs> was uh, i poured out a handle because we way over ordered alcohol because you know we weren't really drinking that much so poured out a handle of tito's vodka and filled it with the potable water that our camp provided and i was just rolling around with a handle of tito's (laughs) vodka water and that was my that was my thing but that's normalized you know like that experience and then everybody shares that thing because i had you know handles a good amount of water and then people were always running out of water so everybody's communally like lending in like oh you got some water yeah sure i got some water and random strangers will have water or somebody will, you'll have a little pile of clothes and you're dancing around and somebody will appreciate your dancing and leave you a gift on yeah. your pile of clothes so you'll pull it all off and be like fuck a bag of jelly beans <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that's that's incredible you yeah. know and so it kind of cultivates this everybody looking out for each other yeah I, i'm most interested personally in how and if it's possible to take elements of the experience of Burning Man and incorporate it or replicate it in other areas. Uh, because I don't, uh, and uh, you know, my girlfriend said the same thing. It was her first time at Burning Man. And she said, I'm not, I had a great experience. It was super intense. I'm really happy we went, but I'm not itching to go back next year. Like I don't feel yeah, says, an immediate- Yeah, says everybody yeah, for yeah. the first three months yeah, after yeah, Burning yeah, Man. Yeah. Then it starts to creep on you again yeah, yeah. after that a little bit. But. but I took a 10 year break, right? And uh, I, I enjoy, I have enjoyed Burning Man, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm even more interested in, I think, exploring how my favorite aspects of it could be incorporated in other ways possibly yeah that makes which which is is not necessarily across the board feasible right you're not gonna have (laughs) multi-story high art pieces all over your backyard uh but uh this how do you encourage people to pretend to be the best versions of themselves until they become closer to that best version of themselves Mm -hmm. is that's that's a tantalizing question for me um one of my uh one of my inspirational teachers paul selig he he speaks the words that you know you sing people's song until they remember the words yeah you know and so it's this attitude of 
viewing yourself and viewing other people in the best light possible and holding that vision until other people look at you like oh wow you're seeing me as my best self maybe i am that yeah and i've seen that as an employer i've seen that as a friend i've seen that as a lover i've seen that whereas if if you can if you can always see from that perspective people will more likely meet you at that perspective whereas if you walk them down that path of judgment and criticism and seeing them in their worst you know you'll end up feeling some of those same feelings and they'll end up actually showing you those aspects more readily well i mean that that begets also i mean so many questions that uh i love teasing with in my own head such as you know how much of each person pretending to be their best self is a function of them deciding that before they get to burning man versus having 69,000 plus other people walking up to you wide open energetically yep. expecting you to be your best self yep right impossible to decide yeah yeah you know which is the which is the coercive factor because both are contributive mm-hmm. you know like there's it's really undeniable there so talk to me a little bit about you know cuz you've gone on your own you know psychedelic and other practice you know based journey on really finding out the truth of who you are in mm-hmm. the best version of yourself in the best way but typically that comes from suffering yeah know, it has for me you know and for most people that comes from a place some of those dark moments and those dark places the places where you haven't got it figured out the places where you are hurting mm-hmm. and then seeking the solution to that so you know what are some of these these forces that have kind of driven you to follow this path <sighs> Hmm. Let's see where to begin. I would say that uh, you know I experienced a lot of my childhood is, is quite difficult, and you know had some had some fairly awful things happen that I, I won't get into right now. But people can use their imagination, and uh, uh, ended up for certainly my adolescence, all the way up through college. Uh, decided for many different reasons that rage was a fuel I would use. Mm. And I don't, it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly where that comes from, probably multiple places. But I decided very early on that one of my advantages, because I didn't feel like I had many advantages, so one of my advantages I would cultivate was pain tolerance. And that I would get really good at suffering. And uh, one can see why this as a long-term strategy might not be ideal. (laughs) Uh, But it did serve me. It served me for a long time. And I was able to do things that people weren't willing or able to do because I could just metabolize this pain in some odd way. And a lot of the rage that I felt towards other people, although I was never... I don't think I was ever abusive or very rarely exploded at other people, but I would direct that anger at myself oh, yes. and used that rage as jet fuel for, in most cases, some type of competition, whether that was competition in school, competition in wrestling. It's like I was always the guy who could suck more weight, you know, cut. I was cutting my senior year of high school from 178 to 152 twice a week. And uh, that is without IV rehydration. So you just start thinking about this and you're like, good God. I mean, it is 
it is just incredible that I didn't have some type of organ failure. And uh, these types of, I suppose, thought patterns, self-directed loathing, and uh, despite all outward indications of success or moving in the right direction, right? Well, they were the, linked. Yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> very, well, very well, very uh, well. Could have been, and it's hard to imagine them not being interlinked. Uh, but these are behaviors and thought patterns that, at least to my recollection, weren't things I talked myself into. Mm-hmm. They weren't things I reasoned myself into. I wasn't like, you know what? Self-loathing would be a great strategy <laughs> for success Ooh, and achievement. 9 p.m. Yeah. I got to get my hour of self-loathing yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Where's Everybody? my cat of nine tails? Yeah. Let me whip my back. <laughs> uh, there was not a conscious decision after considering all the options. So I began at one point uh, and had some early exposure in college to psychedelics, which seemed to despite how haphazardly they were used. I mean, in retrospect, it yeah. just makes me facepalm because it was yeah. so irresponsible since there were we didn't have any resources, didn't have any instruction, direction, anything, but showed me the potential to, in a sense, hit the reset button and allow me to see things with fresh eyes. Yeah. As opposed to simply repeating the same stories I've always told myself in my head. I would get a break. It wasn't permanent, but I would get a grace period, this afterglow of perhaps anywhere from a week to a month where I could just see things more clearly and make better decisions. Uh, And had a number of very scary experiences. One in particular, keeping in mind, I mean, we're just rolling the dice every time we took this stuff and we weren't going out of our way to be dangerous, but I did come out of one trip standing in the middle of the road at night with headlights coming at me, not ideal. And after that decided I was done. So I took a long break from psychedelics, uh, but as these habitual or compulsive thought patterns and behaviors continued, uh, was encouraged by an ex-girlfriend to revisit psychedelics as a way to potentially address or better understand some of the things that we haven't reasoned ourselves into. Yeah. Right? And uh, so those are some of the contributing factors and life experiences that led me to yeah. look at these tools. It's and, so- and it's also led me to look at other tools outside of psychedelics i mean there there it, it is one incredibly attractive tool uh, set of tools yeah uh, but I'm, I'm also interested in, in other means of of accessing those things that we didn't consciously decide to incorporate as part of ourselves that that function is a pattern interrupt and almost like a map finder where you actually know what it feels like to be in unicity with all things and consciousness you know what it feels like to be radically in forgiveness of yourself and your flaws and in a state of love like you're the sun and you're just shining equally on all these things around you and receiving all the love like Rumi did you know the whole world was Rumi's beloved receiving all the love from the world like you can taste that and be like oh here's a perspective that I can now apply Mm -hmm. and try to find my way back but the mind will confuse you and put up evidence and create these little tunnels and pathways that 
you'll have to cut through but at least knowing that state and at least having that as part of your somatic and psychological memory of like oh i felt something different than this and maybe i can find my way back it's really helpful it's like it really helpful yeah to, to know it that. exists to know it exists right. which exactly. is also something when i was voluntary Zendo that came up quite a bit because people would experience these bouts of paranoia or depression or guilt and they would also have these periods of elation and they wanted to access that and they would grasp at it because they mm -hmm. felt like it was so fleeting and i'm like that's something you're doing on your own like it is your mind that's doing this currently with the assistance of something else yeah. but that is something once you experience it that you can navigate your way back to mm -hmm. and uh to your point once you felt this uh, peace very often at seeing the absurdity of how uh, you deem many things important that are just fucking ridiculous yeah, yeah. and howling with laughter <laughs> yeah just like why am i getting so wound up about things a through z they're completely inconsequential like yeah. uh, as as we sit here as you know monkeys spinning on a rock in the middle of space but uh that firsthand experience of peace or self-love or self-acceptance or forgiveness of someone else or yourself uh as you mentioned i think as a proof that it can exist as as a felt experience is is very powerful yeah what you then do with that is a bigger question right sure because there, there are people just like those people who go to burning man who go to escape they do not go to explore and in, to incorporate they go to escape and there are people who go to psychedelics for the same thing and they just carve out that experience as a psychedelic only experience yeah and they don't apply those lessons broadly enough to your yeah. life but and once you start learning the tools and learn where what known not only what to feel like but what are the traps that you can get in and what yeah. are the things that might be happening you know i realized recently just to tell a personal story of something that came up after burning man obviously I had this accident where my yeah. face and my smile is at least for the time being significantly changed yeah. you know and I'm not as strong and I'm not as capable I'm tired a lot of, you know my body's still recovering from this and you know the night of the the whole time of the accident I knew it happened for me not to me and that was from a billion lessons and yeah. stoicism and psychedelics and teachings and and going against resistance and seeking those hard spots and those fears and I had that, but what I didn't also realize is from that very first night when I was mangled and bloody and I was fooling around with Whitney in the hospital bed sheets, I was somehow utilizing her validation of me as still being whole, mm. still being beautiful because she was still attracted to me. She was still horny, even though I was a fucking bloody mess that night, you know, and I'm on painkillers and I'm hooked up to a heart monitor and we'd start fooling around and the heart monitor would go off <laughs> and the nurse would come in and we'd be like, I'm doing nothing here, yeah, everything's good. Like, Do you need any more meds? Like, nope, good, just get out of here, please. You know, but that, so I had borrowed some validation from her mm -hmm. and that made me feel whole and it made me feel like, yeah, I'm still a man, you know, and then at Burning Man, Whitney really got to connect with one of her lovers who's now, you know, considered, I basically consider her, her and him boyfriend, girlfriend. And it's a, a relationship that had escalated to a point where I hadn't had to experience that with Whitney. Nothing has gone this deep with yeah. another one of her lovers. And so as I experienced that and she spent some time with him afterwards, and that validation from her was temporarily withdrawn and shown to another person, then all of a sudden I'm feeling like, oh man, I'm injured and I'm 
broken and I'm weak and I'm not attractive and all of these things because I was borrowing her validation to bolster my own self instead of actually having it be radical self-acceptance for what I was. I was actually borrowing some support from her. And then when she removed that support like a crutch, I could actually feel where I needed to support my own wounds, you know, the areas where I needed to, okay, I got to love myself for this. And I can't be dependent on anybody, including Whitney, you know, and Whitney, to her, of course, still has that. It didn't go anywhere, but my mind wouldn't allow me to accept all that. And so I had to build it. And I'm in the process of building that back up on my own outside of the validation. But I wouldn't have been able to see any of that yeah. if it wasn't for the training, you know? And so even though I still feel it, even though I still feel some of those feelings, you know, that I'm not worthy of love anymore, I kind of go, okay, I see what's happening here. I have sympathy and empathy for myself and I welcome the challenge now. I welcome the challenge to build those true feelings mm-hmm. of how to respond to this accident, you know, from this experience. And it's, that's such a gift and that's such a blessing to be able to look at things and acknowledge like, okay, here's, yeah, here's a hard level. This is a hard level. And I was getting support. Now I got to build it on my own. But to even know that it's that way, I can win. Like I can beat it. I can actually do the work to actually support myself and advance beyond it. But without that introspection and awareness, I'd be fucking hopeless. You know, I'd be mad at her. I'd be mad at him or I'd be, you know, my mind would tell me all these things when I can just acknowledge like, okay, well, you know, I have some work to do to really love myself in this new condition and love myself when I'm a little bit less capable. Like there's, that's some effort. How are you thinking about approaching that or how are you approaching that? You know, I think I know that, so it goes back to knowing the truth. Like I've known the truth of who I am as pure consciousness beyond this monkey body and that I've that I've built, you know, in the on a gym and everywhere else my whole life. I've known myself as that, and I've known myself as a force of love, and I've known that that's the true me. So it's really now applying the remembering of that to this current state and being like, you know, you know, brother, that that doesn't matter. Like you felt yourself as just a force of consciousness beyond the incarceration of your cellular expression you know like you've known yourself as that and you've known that thing is worthy of love so remember like remember you still are no matter what no matter what this woman or any woman or anybody actually says like you felt it and you know it and that's something that i wouldn't be able to do if i never felt felt that or tasted that you know if i hadn't done five meo or ayahuasca or one of these other psychedelics that to me was my path that was my way of getting to a state where i knew myself as consciousness and knew that consciousness as love in giving and receipt of all the love when you have that then that realization uh and that truth how do you translate that into or how are you thinking about translating that into practices so that it doesn't get forgotten right Mm -hmm. so that it's reinforcing the key is not to I can't double down on any of the parts of the mind that want to create another reality. Like I have to radically admit to myself, to Whitney, to my friends, like, man, I'm just feeling low and small and weak and wounded and injured. And that's making me feel a bit insecure. And then just admitting that and then everybody going, I see you, I feel what you're going through, you know? And just, I think it's that same paradigm that we've talked about where everybody just kind of normalizes that and like oh that makes sense brother yeah. and then 
instead of trying to create something that justifies it and like well i can't believe she's doing this and i can't believe and look at me i'm like this everybody just kind of normalizes it and it's really been in the communal sharing of that with myself first and foremost to not trick myself into thinking that this isn't just an opportunity to do work yeah but also then sharing that with people who have also felt the same states that i felt and also seen me expressed you know not just as my man but when i can get out of my way and do something as my best self which is not what i do in the on a gym i mean that's cool that's fun you know like i'm i have fun on the basketball court too but that's not why i'm actually here or why i'm actually worthy of love it's when i can get out of the way and be my higher self expressed and just so to be willing to have people still see me in that you know still see me in that light it's a really valuable tool to have a community that can help receive it and that's been probably the thing that's helped me the most what has kyle said to you <laughs> kyle's kyle, a perceptive guy he's a very perceptive guy and he's very aware very aware and uh i think i can talk to kyle so openly and he it's not even what he says it's just how he receives it you know like i once heard uh, jesus christ the energy of christ consciousness explained to me by an ayahuasca shaman hamilton morris and uh he said if you meet christ there's an ayahuasca shaman named hamilton morris hamilton uh i guess it's hamilton souther hamilton morris <laughs> okay. is the he's the, the psychedelic i was like hamilton's that doesn't sound right. yeah. i was like man hamilton's been hamilton's holding out on me hamilton, hamilton souther <laughs> okay sorry yeah. <laughs> wrong hamilton um, yeah but hamilton south so he says when you meet jesus christ con christ conscious not the man you know but the consciousness that's uh, symbolized by that you show your very worst that worst thought you've ever had that worst thing you've ever done that thing you're most ashamed of and you show all of that and you receive from christ consciousness that there isn't even a flinch there isn't even a moment of judgment. There isn't time for forgiveness. You don't have to reach for holy water, do 10 bows, do a little dance to get forgiveness. You're pre-forgiven. The love was never wavering. There wasn't even a flinch. Like love held no record of wrong. Like the Christ consciousness never even saw that as a flaw. You know, and like that was so powerful for me to like recognize like, oh, oh so you don't have to earn the forgiveness from the force of christ consciousness that's why it's such an important symbol because it's already there you know and and so for kyle not trying to compare him to christ consciousness but in a way i can express my hardest thing and he just kind of nods and just doesn't flinch and goes yeah brother yeah brother and that's that to me right there is like enough to go like oh i'm okay yeah <laughs> you know like i'm i'm doing fine everything's going to be okay and that's a really you know powerful element of the friendship and yeah we can we can spin off into words and discuss certain things and get into practicum and how to handle that but it's that first moment of just pure attention and like unwavering unflinching truth and acceptance of yeah. who i am that is really transformative so that in the volunteering quite a bit because i had a lot of time to sit yeah, <laughs> and sometimes yeah. my people would be out cold so i'd be observing what's going on in the room and uh very often it seemed like the people who tried to do the most to talk the most were the least consoling yeah to people yeah and it was very often just someone who would sit there 
Mm -hmm. and with zero expectation but with like eyes and ears open heart open just sitting calmly who uh, were able to in turn calm the other people with them because when you're in one of those hard moments anything that someone says because i've i've expressed this to a lot of different people and i've had different reactions yeah and sometimes people will be trying to help you know they say that old aphorism the road to hell is paved with good intentions right they're trying to help but they say something and i'm like oh man that thing really fucking that thing really stings a little bit actually you yeah. know and and i think that's something that can happen in all cases where yeah. the words can be interpreted in a million ways but you know what can't you sitting in the field and vibration of love and acceptance and you know shared empathy and understanding where someone is like that rarely is misinterpreted and i think that's uh you know that's a real valuable thing you can give to somebody how is this all right so we don't have too much time left but i want to ask you how all of your experiences psychedelic growth wise all the different tools that you've used how has it changed your own views on love and relationship I would say that uh, I'll lead into it by saying I heard at some point that Gertrude Stein had said that the and I'm paraphrasing here might be misattributed but I think it's I think it's accurate had said that the the golden rule can be reversed or it should be in the sense that you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you also do unto yourself as you would do unto others. And I think for me, I've come to realize that I can help myself by helping other people. I can help other people by helping myself. And that those two are very much mutually reinforced or mutually deteriorated. And that... When you can't make yourself happy, focus on making someone else happy, and it'll often end up in the same place. Right? When you're having trouble working on, say, self-talk to yourself, you can work on nonviolent communication and practice that in a very concrete way, which is easier to track than trying to trace each of your thoughts and responses to your thoughts. And that uh for me, love love is really one of those words that never made sense to me, or I, I didn't quite know what to do with it until uh, the last few years, where you have, in certain circumstances, not exclusively psychedelics, but certainly uh, that is fertile ground for this type of experience, where you have you experience love as something nearly ineffable, something that's very hard to describe, but that makes sense contextually when afterwards you, say, read poetry, which is not something I ever did until a handful of years ago, but you read Hafez or Rumi and you're like, okay, now this actually is starting to make sense to me. Yeah. And if I were to try to express it, I would say that uh, in my very limited experience love and a sense of peace with yourself and with other people comes more from acceptance 
than understanding. Mm. And if you are a type A personality, if you are good with spreadsheets and business plans and executing and long-term vision and three-year plans and so on, you, very often the first instinct is to go with your strengths and try to deduce rationally pro and con list out whatever it is that's confounding you to try to find peace through understanding. And my experience has been certainly strive for understanding. And uh, I, I'm not suggesting people should just choose ignorance and stick their head in the sand on all things. But that there are so many things in life outside of your control, including how other people respond to you expressing truth or how you feel that love and peace for me have come more from accepting how many things are outside of my control yeah. uh, versus trying to buckle down and think my way through it yep. and understand. Makes sense. You know, that control, control of outcome is a fallacy ultimately to yeah. a certain degree. You know, we have control of effort you know, we have a control of, are we doing our best? Yeah. It's really what we have control over, but do we have control of whether someone loves us? No. Or control of whether they follow the path of healing or do the thing that's best for them? No. We have control of us providing whatever support is best. And maybe that is wordless and maybe that's, you know, very little, or maybe that is a lot. Maybe that is actually sitting down with them on a piece of paper and being like, okay, what is the most important thing for you? What's your mission? Where do you want to go? What's this? Maybe it is that, but maybe it's not. Yeah. And divorcing yourself of that idea that, as I'm sure you've had this as I have, where you can get with somebody and figure out all their shit, point to all of it, and they're going to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. Got it. I'm going to do all that. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. you've, you've figured it out. You've yeah. done it. You know, that's not exactly how relationships work. You know? Yeah. No, it's, it's certainly the case. And it, I, I'm a bit of a slow knuckle dragger. So it's taken me a <laughs> long time to not default to fixing mm. and what i've only realized recently is that doesn't only apply to say past girlfriends or romantic relationships where they'd be like here's this oh my god i'm feeling this i'm having this problem be like great let's fucking fix it right now like let's lay it out <laughs> instead of just listening empathically and yeah. allowing them to feel whatever it is they feel is necessary or is is it's coming up at the moment and uh it's easy in retrospect to see that, but what took me longer to notice is that I also did that with myself. I would not allow myself to feel anything. Mm. I viewed that as a primitive, handicapping, unhelpful response to anything that might be happening. And my belief was that in all circumstances, the answer was to be as Vulcan-like as possible and unemotional so that I could spreadsheet and fact my way out that of whatever like, dilemma. That should actually be a verb when you're spocking, <laughs> when you're spocking a situation, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. Just being a human calculator. Yeah, you know? and there, there's, a, there's certainly a place for, no for all of that, but it is, not, it is a tool, it's not the only tool. And if you disallow yourself from feeling emotions... Uh, particularly those emotions that you view are negative, right? I, I, I can't remember who said this to me, but I think it was Tara Brock, who's just an incredible meditation teacher and also a spectacular writer. I recommend her book, Radical Acceptance, to everyone. Terrible title, fantastic book that touches on this uh, quite deeply. 
but I think it was Tara Brock who said, you know, there was a, a sage who said, there's really only one question worth pursuing. And that is, what is it that you are unwilling to feel? Like, Damn. yeah. And like, <laughs> that will take you really far if you spend some time on that. So I've been thinking about that a lot in the last few years. It's a good thing for all of us to think about. Yeah. No doubt. Well, man, it's a fucking pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks for by. having me. It's so cool that you're here in Austin and we get to hang out and do shit like this and get some food and, and play, man. This is I love a, it. This is beautiful. I really appreciate you. And so many people who I talk to, as you know, you know, you're just such an inspiring force doing so much good for the world and for people. And, you know, just on my behalf, I'm one of those people. Just so much gratitude for you for not only providing the information, but for doing the fucking work for realsies. <laughs> not for like not for pretensies yeah. not for the camera not for the show not for the spectacle of it not for the mala beads or the you know the the badge on your boy scout shirt that says i did ayahuasca but for <laughs> doing it for fucking for realsies thanks brother you know so i really appreciate that uh anything you want to let people obviously man listen to the tim ferris podcast people please that's fucking incredible we had a great time when i was yeah. on there as well yeah, and there's we did. tons of incredible interviews um one of the master interviewers and and so definitely listen to that. But but what else? What else can people kind of dig into? What else can people dig into? Uh, I would say if if people are interested in in seeing what I'm up to, the latest experiments and uh, cool odd things that I that I find on a regular basis, uh, you could certainly check out the newsletter. I think the newsletter is the newsletter is the fastest growing, in some ways, most exciting thing that I'm up to these days. I think it's like 100, uh, 1.4 million people or something Fuck yeah. on the newsletter. So I send out a short little list of bullet points every Friday, Five Bullet Friday, which is just the coolest, craziest, weirdest stuff that I've come across that week. Uh, it's free. It, it'll always be free. Uh, so you can check that out at tim.blog forward slash Friday. And uh, otherwise, I would say for those people who had any of what we're talking about resonate, I would highly recommend Tara Brock's book, Radical Acceptance. Brock is spelled B-R-A-C-H. If you search Tara Brock and Tim Ferriss, I also did interview her on uh, the Tim Ferriss show because I was so impacted by that book. Mm. Uh, and I would say, don't view feelings as a, as a liability. I think they are part of being human. And if you've spent the majority of your life developing the unemotional, detached, approach to problem solving and it would be very well worth spending some time with how you feel uh I, th I think that that can go a really long way uh towards self-acceptance and ultimately if you just want to view it from a performance standpoint to better performance and achievement in life i mean you know, you, and because if you, when you know how you feel and are able to feel how you feel you'll be able to see other people exactly because all humans are emotional creatures yeah or responding to their emotions in an interesting defensive way which makes them spock their way out of any yeah. situation so but you'll be able to be able to see that definitely you'll be able to see it and relate to other people and you'll be able to drive without the emergency brake on mm -hmm. uh so I would, I would encourage people to to certainly check that out wise advice my brother <laughs> thank you for everybody tuning in so much love we'll see you next week I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast with Tim. Like he said, please sign up for his newsletter, check out his podcast, check out his books. They're really incredible. And also, if you guys are inspired, 
for your own call to service, definitely check out the new mastermind that I'm creating, the Fit for Service Mastermind. It's really going to be incredible. I'm putting all of my effort into it. We're creating a fellowship of people who are looking to level up mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually to bring the best for themselves, their family, and the world. It's going to be a year-long commitment, and it's just going to be fucking rad. So definitely check that out. That's aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service. And then if you're interested to just hang with me, do some ecstatic dance, meet some amazing coaches like Duncan Trussell, Chris Ryan, Kyle Kingsbury, Christine Hassler, we're going to have an awesome weekend in Los Angeles. We're going to have an open relationship workshop with Whitney Miller. We're going to have a business workshop where we can discuss your entrepreneurship ideas and your management needs and everything you need to know for business. We're going to really cover the full gamut in person. And that's at aubreymarcus.com slash weekend. So if you're interested in that, I would love to see you out in Los Angeles. And just, I appreciate you guys. You know, we have a new field guide up for depression. You might've seen me put that out. Um, that's something that I've struggled with in my life. And, you know, I'm committed to sharing all the lessons from all the failures, all the stumbles, all the times I've landed flat on my face and didn't think I was gonna get back up. And, uh, and all those lessons from the triumphs as well and the successes and the amazing things that I've been able to bring into my life too. So thank you guys for following and listening and reaching out. Um, I just really feel blessed to have all you as part of this tribe. So much love, everybody. I'll see you next week.